Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, your host, and it's a beautiful sunny Saturday here in Utah, and I'm joined by yet another super fun former slot colleague, Rich Kennedy. Rich, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Christian. It's uh, it's exciting to be uh, on your podcast with you. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Uh, I always enjoyed our time there at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, so it's great to catch up after so many years. Uh, just where exactly are you joining us from? I'm, you know, I'm home in Layton, Utah, uh, right up from Hill Air Force Base, so hopefully you won't hear jets screaming overhead. <laughs> My wife and I just built a home up here uh, about six months ago. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. And hopefully you're not suffering too much from earthquakes that we've had previously. <laughs> well, uh, we, we had that jolt and we felt that uh, my wife is originally from California and she just kind of said, eh, that was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's a big deal for us here locally. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're always worried about the big one coming, you know, that we've been told all our lives since we were kids, especially if you grew up in Utah, you know, oh, the big one, you know, the, the Wasatch Fault. <laughs> yeah, it's like the boogie monster. Oh, the big yeah. one will come. Yeah, now I was working, I work in Salt Lake. And so uh, when we had that second huge aftershock, I was working and that shook our building pretty good. And the boss said, okay, I wouldn't go home. <laughs> So during this whole COVID-19 pandemic and everything, are you still going into the office or are you working from home? No, I've been working from home since about uh, the last week of March. So um, I sell insurance and my wife sells insurance. So we're both, we're in different rooms selling insurance during the day. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have little competitions like, okay, uh, you sold so many policies (laughs) or something like this. Uh, You you make dinner or I make dinner or... (laughs) Yeah, she is so fantastic at what she does. I would lose every single time. So I don't even go there. That's all right. Well, I guess in the end, you're still the winner, right? (laughs) Well, I'm trying to gleam off of her example. She's taught me a lot about sales. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's uh, let's wind the clock back a little bit, shall we? Let's talk slock. slock. (laughs) My first question for you is, um, what did you do there? What was your role? Well, well, as you know, I mean, uh, when uh, I started about two weeks before Mitt Romney did, and when Mitt came on, he said, hey, we're going to have people do multiple jobs. So technically, I was part of HR in staffing, but um, primarily I was a recruiter in charge of trying to drum up all the volunteers to help with the games. And then um, I worked with the training department and was doing training. Uh, I was working with recognition. Um, uh, I was also on the speakers bureau. I was with Bill Shaw's team. I'd go out in the community and talk and um, do presentations about the Olympics. And, um, and then I did games time employment when we got so many volunteers a year before the games. We were, <laughs> I almost recruited myself out of a job. We uh, said, well, let's focus on the games time employment, which was the paid aspect of, of, um, people could do part-time or, well, yeah, it was uh, temporary employment and, uh, worked on that. And then during the games, I was a HR manager. Wow. So you're like the jack of all trades there in, <laughs> in HR. Well, you know how the Olympics was, it was so exciting to be part of it. You know, you, you did whatever they asked you to, or you volunteered, Hey, you know, can I help with this? Can I help with that? I just wanted to be involved in so many aspects. And the interesting thing about that is if you take that comment a certain way, it sounds a bit manipulative, right? Like, oh, well, they'll do anything we ask of them. So we'll just ask them everything. (laughs) But at the same time, 
I, I didn't find it like that. I, th- I felt like it was giving people an opportunity to gain experience in a lot of different areas and really showcase their skills. And um, so I took it as a positive. Oh, yeah. No, I did, too. I, I um, you know, what I tried when I when I made that comment, I was meaning I wanted to be involved in so much, you know, and I wanted to learn so much. It was kind of a learning ground for me because I was brand new to HR. I, I started as an intern. And what was funny is I read an article um a few, like back in 98, I remember it was May of 98, Ed Einan had just been hired as the head of HR. And he said, we're going to hire 800 people. And I thought at that point, I thought, you know, I really would love to be part of this. Uh, but I thought, you know, I, I probably don't have the experience or anything like that. And I actually ended up becoming an intern. I came in and worked for free 40 hours a week because I was so determined to get hired on. And after a couple months, they did hire me. Well, that strategy definitely paid off then. (laughs) It did. It did. But I was, I love the Olympics so much that I would probably would have, uh, I had a nighttime job. I was kind of working two jobs full time at the Olympics. And then in the evening I was doing a, a nighttime customer service job, but I would have done it up until games time if I had to, because I loved it so much. Now, you mentioned Matt, you mentioned Ed. Well, those were some of the kind of the big kahunas there mm-hmm. in the organizing committee. But I found that uh, I thoroughly enjoyed working with so many of the people there at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Who were some of the people that you worked with that you found super funny or entertaining or <laughs> inspiring? You know, and, and it's hard to name names because inevitably people leave people out and that happens. But, sure, you know, sure. if you could just give us a couple of examples of some some really interesting folks that you worked with. Um well, I, I really enjoyed working with Darren Hughes. Um, he was kind of my first boss, my first manager when I started there. Um, Ron Mortensen, definitely. He was my mentor. He taught me everything I, I knew about HR. Like I said, when I came into the Olympics, I was brand new to the field of HR and so was willing to pick up and learn anything I could. Um, Steve Clark was great. Um, Christian LaBarbera, who was my last manager was was really great to work with and in fact um he went to greece to help with 2004 and i actually he called me and said come over and help me with the game so i actually went over to greece for five weeks to help him with the olympics in greece and that was great yeah christian was a he was a hoot he was one of the (laughs) he was one of the most hilarious people that i ever worked with and i i loved working with christian um, I hope to give him on another one of these podcasts. I actually did work also in Athens uh, with Christian and uh, he was he was so funny. Yeah. Well, that whole department was really fun to work with. I mean, Darren's team and Christian's team, Steve Clark's team. I mean, uh, you know, Jenny Wilson was there um, now mayor of Salt Lake County. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of great people that I just loved working with. But uh, a funny story about Christian is I was asked to make a Christmas video for our staffing Christmas party. I don't know if you ever saw it, um, but we made this video where we went around and interviewed different people from the Olympic Committee. And uh, at the very end of our video, uh, the screen goes black and it comes up and it says, um, Christmas thoughts with Christian LaBarbera. And we filmed Christian walking around um the, with all the city lights and everything reflecting on Christmas and he's watching children at the skate pond and he's got a tear in his eye and, and he says, children are so wonderful at this time of year. And then out of nowhere, a snowball comes and just hits him. 
And he starts swearing and screaming, <laughs> runs off screen like he's about to kill these kids. And that's how we finished it off. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, well, speaking of uh, funny, um, do you have any other funny or humorous or interesting uh, stories that, that uh, come to mind as we go through our conversation this morning? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I was with the committee for about three years. So, yeah, there was a lot that happened. And when in fact, when we first started, this was before we moved to the big, huge office tower, the uh, what's now the Wells Fargo building. I think it was the uh, the Skaggs building. Um, at the time, American Stores is what it was, the American Stores building. Uh, and so we were down uh, downtown on second, second, let's see, it was second south. Um, and, um, you know, small operation, there was maybe about 250 employees at the time. And so one of the things that they did is the Olympic Park said, hey, if you want to come up and learn Olympic sports, you can sign up for these classes. So I signed up for a bobsledding class. I said, I, I think, you know, I love the bobsled. I'm going to learn how to bobsled. So uh, I went up on uh, an afternoon during work and they said, okay, yeah, take time off, go up and have fun. So I got up there and it was two man bobsled and we were paired into teams. And um, they gave us the, the big spike shoes. And, and so there's about six teams of two people and we were competing against one another to see who could have the fastest time on the track. Well, uh, my first time doing it, I was the one who, who had to push the sled and jump in. And then the driver was already situated. And he was just this, uh, he was this teenage kid. And, um, and I'd never jumped in a bobsled before. And so when the clock went off, I started pushing as hard as I could and running and never having jumped into a bobsled before, not realizing how difficult it was. I flew in there feet first and I spiked him in the back <laughs> with my shoes, and uh, I don't think he—I don't think he realized that he didn't like make any response. But when we got out of the Bob said there was a big hole in his jacket <laughs> from where I had cleated him in the back. So, <laughs> ouch! That's gotta hurt. I imagine. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it looks so easy on television, right? I mean, oh, yeah. they just run down the thing and then they jump in and then they just. Yeah. Pedal down and you know down the track they go. It looks very very easy. I'm sure there's yeah, well, a tremendous amount of technique. Yeah, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of technique involved. Oh, absolutely. I thought it would be you know cakewalking. No, it was a lot harder than I thought. <laughs> uh, Richie mentioned that you worked as an HR manager at a venue. What was the venue that you worked at? I worked in the main media center, which was an amazing venue. It was uh, it was basically a mini city. That's the best way to describe it. A mini city, because we had we had a five star restaurant. We had several bars. Um, we had a McDonald's, a full-size McDonald's built inside. We had a grocery store in there. I mean, it was amazing. And then, of course, every uh, media outlet was there. We had Sports Illustrated, New York Times, LA Times, um, you, know, you name it, they, they were there. And it, was, and it was really exciting because NBC was there. So we'd see Bob Costas walking through the building. Conan O'Brien walked through the building one day. So it was really kind of fun to see all these celebrities and stuff walking through the building for interviews and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a mini city. Now, what was funny was we were outside of that city. We were in a tent outside. And of course, in the wintertime, we'd get kind of cold. Um, and we, we were working 24-7, so we were constantly in that tent. And security, of course, was really tight because, remember, it was right after 9-11. So, so it felt like we were in a city surrounded like a prison because they had these big high fences with barbed wire and guards with guns walking back and forth. And it was a really uh, 
crazy process to get checked in every morning. You had to give yourself at least an hour before to get checked in because of all the security screening. Yeah, that was a crazy time after 9-11. It seemed like a lot of things changed um, after that happened. Um, Do you remember where you were that morning? And um, and what was that experience like for you? Oh, my gosh. Um, So um, I was getting ready to come into work. Um, my, my wife at the time, Jennifer, um, was traveling for work. She was actually in Washington, DC on that day. So she was downtown Washington at meetings. Um, I'm getting ready for work and the phone rings and I, and my friend, my best friend's on the line and he said, Hey, um, you got to turn on the TV. Uh, there's been a huge accident at the world trade center. And so I turned on the TV and there it was, you know, the first building was smoldering and, and I'm saying, Oh, wow, that's crazy. And he said, yeah, a plane crashed into it. And I said, Oh, that's terrible. And then as we're talking, the second plane flies in and I just remember him saying, Oh my gosh, that, that was not an accident. And then of course, all the reports started flooding in and pretty soon the phone was ringing and it was slock and they were saying, please stay home today, stay with your families. And so, uh, didn't have kids at the time. It's just me and my wife, she was traveling. So the first thing I did was pick up the phone because they're saying there's bombs going all over Washington, D.C. because they didn't know what was happening. And so I was picking up the phone, trying to reach her, couldn't get through to her. The line was busy. So I was panicking, wondering if she was okay. Um, I, I never got a hold of her until about 6 p.m. that night. was just constantly trying to call her all day. And I remember just sitting in my family room, watching the news unfold and just being kind of in shock by, by everything that was going on. And I remember deep down inside thinking, if I have to go to war over this, I will go. I was I was that upset. Yeah, I felt I felt um, shock, but also a bit of anger, too. Um, and it's a bit hard for me to say. But, yes, I, I did feel angry uh, mm-hmm. when I when I saw what was happening. But but I had my family with me. I can't imagine it was like not knowing, mm-hmm. you know, what the situation was with your wife. Was she able to get home? in a timely manner because they shut down flights. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people were renting cars and driving through states, you know, to get home. Yeah. I mean, yeah. was she able to get home all right? Um, it took about a week, but she had an aunt who lived in Maryland and her, and she just went and stayed with her aunt. And what was funny is remember Mitt Romney was actually in Washington, D.C. as well. He was um, meeting, he was going to meet with Congress about security funding. He was going to ask for, I think, like 50,000 more dollars for, and they gave him like 250,000 more dollars. <laughs> they said, yeah, here, take it. You know, this was, this was, um, you know, he was supposed to meet um, that day with Congress. And of course, he didn't meet until later, but he definitely got the security funding. But um, she eventually got home uh, about, took her about five days to get home, to get on a flight, to get home. But what was really neat was I was talking to Mitt about it. And as you remember, Mitt was so, um, he was so approachable. He was just, he was just like a regular guy you could talk to. And, and we just happened to be, he was, he was with, uh, with me and a bunch of other people talking about 9-11. And I said, oh yeah, my wife was stuck in Washington, DC. And, and I'll never forget. He says, if I had known, I would have gotten her on my private jet and brought her home. And I thought, you know, that was so stand up of Mitt. I mean, that's just the way he is. So I've always admired Mitt. I, I have too. I have too. And um, I think he was absolutely the right person to come in and lead the committee when he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, ultimately, I think the games speak for themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the reputation amongst the movement is still to this day that 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 was one of the best run, best managed mm-hmm. games 
Not necessarily oh, yeah. spectacular, but in terms of the leadership and the management team, that was a well-oiled machine that Mitt and Fraser had put together. And um, I, I give him a lot of props for that. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, here's, a, here's a story that when I was first going to be an intern, uh, I was going to actually work in the uh, media department. I was going to work with Carolyn Shaw and her team. Actually, at the time, it was Shelly Thomas. Um, as you remember, she was the uh, was a big, longtime anchor newswoman from KSL. Everyone loved her, revered her, and she was the head of our of our public relations. And I wanted to be in public relations, and so my my internship was supposed to start January first of ninety nine, and um, and of course that's when the um, the whole scandal erupted. And so they called me and they said, yeah, we just aren't really in the position to bring on an intern. We'll get back to you. And I just thought, oh, there goes, there goes my chance to be part of the Olympics. And so, and I'd been trying to network in, in, um, public relations. I thought that's, that's the career path I wanted to go, but that was not going anywhere. So I thought, well, I'll just switch over to human resources. That was another interest. And in my networking, someone said, Hey, you need to call this guy named Ron Mortensen. And so I picked up the phone. I called Ron and I said, hi, my name's Rich Canada. I really want to be an intern. Um, you know, I want to be an HR. I don't have a lot of experience. And, and during this whole conversation, never once did I say, well, what company are you with? So I finally said, who, who do you work for, Ron? And Ron said, oh, I'm with the Olympic Committee. And I thought, wow, boom, that that is that is meant to be. And Ron said, I'd love to have you come in and meet with me and be my intern. And and that's how it all started. But uh, yeah, a couple of days later, I was walking in the doors of SLOC as a new intern. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you imagine what life would have been like if you hadn't picked up the phone and made that call? You know, I, yeah, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was Ron and I hit it off immediately because when I was in uh, college, I was studying, I wanted to be in the foreign service and Ron had been a foreign service officer. So we had that in common and that was kind of, uh, and, you know, even to this day, you know, Ron's been a great mentor and a good friend and, and he really was the reason I, I started at SLOC. So I, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine because it was really the absolute greatest job of my life. I always kid and tell people, yeah, I had the best job on the planet, but then it had to end. <laughs> well, it's funny. Several people that I've already spoken with on this podcast have mentioned something similar that that for them, working for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee was, was a career highlight. <laughs> and although they've gone on to do other interesting things, nothing's really impacted them like working on the Salt Lake games did, you know, it was, and, and I feel the same way. I feel the same way that, um, it was just truly special, uh, to work for the Salt Lake organizing committee and work on those games. And the team was amazing. And I haven't really found anything quite like it since. No, I, I really haven't either. Even, even going to Athens and you remember Athens, Athens was so different. The organization was so different than it was in Utah. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I was there a week before opening ceremonies and they were still trying to get things together. I mean, I remember uh, walking around that that main Olympic plaza where the uh, the stadium was and, and a lot of the venues and people were, you know, they had cranes and people doing construction. And I, I was one of the things I did when I was working with Christian is that I was in charge of staffing. So I was given several venues to oversee the staffing and the staffing managers, you know, five o'clock would hit. They're like, well, have a good day. I'm leaving. Now, this is a week before the games and you're leaving at five o'clock. I think, I, I think I worked 24 hours a day 
that first month before the games, trying to get it, you know, everything situated and ready to go. I, I went through the same kind of thought process when I went to Athens and I thought to myself, you know, if these games, and this is not to disparage Athens, but yeah. I thought to myself, if these games were run half as well <clears throat> as the Salt Lake games, they would be absolutely amazing. Oh yeah. And then after the Athens games were done, uh, I went to work in Doha on the 2006 Asian Games mm-hmm. and seeing how things were going in Doha, I thought to myself, you know, if games, if these games in Doha were run half as well as the Athens Games, they would be amazing. And then after that, <laughs> I went to Rio for the Pan American Games and I was working on the Rio 2007 Pan American Games and seeing all the challenges they were facing there. And I thought to myself, gosh, if these guys just ran things half as well as the people in Doha, these games would be amazing. And then after that, I went to Delhi, India for the 2010 Commonwealth Games. I was working on those games. And again, I thought to myself, gosh, if these games were run just half as well as the Rio 2007 Pan American Games, these games would be amazing. And to me, it was just a, it was really a testament to, to how, again, I'm repeating myself here, but just how well run uh, Salt Lake games where they were just run so incredibly efficiently, but also with excitement uh, mm-hmm. and emotion. Everybody bought in to the vision and the mission and the guiding principles that the leadership team with with uh, Mitt and Fraser and Ed, you know, what they put together, everybody mm-hmm. just bought into it and, and they worked their butts off. Like you said, we all worked our butts off um, to deliver those games. And I think it really paid off spectacularly. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember. So I was having lunch with Len Priestcorn um, one day and we were talking about one of the one of the jobs that we did in staffing was we were going around and visiting with corporations in Utah um, about um, letting people have time off to help volunteer for the games. That was a big push that we were doing as part of staffing. And I remember after visiting one corporation, uh, Len and I said, you know, if if a corporation had the same, if everyone in that corporation had the same goal, was driven for the same goal, corporations would be super profitable uh, and strong and, and, you know, all their, you know, I mean, can you imagine? Because the thing I loved about SLOC was that we all had one singular purpose. Every single person that worked there from the guy who took out the trash all the way up to Mitt Romney was to put on the best games ever. And, and, and when you have a team of people where every individual is bought into that, that goal, that dream, that culture, um, you know, great things happen. And that's exactly what happened. But can you imagine that in corporate America? I mean, we have, I mean, I've been, I haven't seen anything like that in any other corporate job or corporate company I've ever worked for. Yeah, I, I do think it's a bit difficult to replicate that in corporate America because with the Olympic Games, A, it's such a high profile thing and B, it takes place at a specific moment in time and then it ends. And yeah. so you know that you that you can push so hard, you can push yourself very hard, you can push your team members so hard because you know that eventually the games will happen and then it'll be over. And then yeah. you can take a breath. Yeah. But I have to say, I don't know how you felt about this, Rich, but I have to say when those games were over, it was a bit difficult actually for me mentally because A, I mean, just like everybody else in the committee, I'd given my all. I felt I gave everything that I had for that. Uh, and B, it was such a joyous celebration. At the same time, it ended. It was over. And then it's like, okay, now what? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I felt, yeah, it was a huge letdown afterwards, like the end of Christmas or high school graduation the day after. I remember we had closing ceremonies and I had the opportunity. Uh, Darren had extra tickets. And so he gave some to me and my family and we went, we all enjoyed the closing ceremonies. And then, um, you know, the games were over. It was, it was done. I remember just kind of feeling emotional as that flame went out. And, uh, I remember sleeping in the next day cause I'd been, you know, 24 seven for 17 days and sleeping in and I woke up, it was about noon and I went down to Slock headquarters. And originally a lot of people were going to be, um, their job was going to end a few weeks after the games. And then Mick came in and said, no, we're going to have a lot of jobs end the following day after closing ceremonies. So I come back in the office. I, I wasn't going to be done until after the Paralympics. So I was there for a few more weeks, but I remember walking in the door and people walking by me with boxes and tears in their eyes. And, and it was just kind of a really somber, nothing like it had been up to those days, um, at all, you know, it was just really kind of somber and people saying goodbye and hugging. And it was really, yeah, it was, it was, it was gut wrenching. And then, and then, you know, trying to replicate that experience in your next job or use that experience to go to the next job. That was, that was tough too, because remember after nine 11, a lot of people weren't hiring. We went right into kind of a, a low hiring point and it took a while to get a job. Yeah, I do remember that. And it was, it was hard. And speaking of that next job, what was that for you? You left the committee and, uh, uh where did you go? Well, I, I ended up, um, working with my brother-in-law who, uh, he got the rights to sell, um, uh, surfware, um, from a company in Australia. Um, and so he was living in Japan and, and he was part of a Japanese company that bought the rights to the United States to exclusively sell this type of, it was, um, I, the best way to describe it, surfer jewelry. It was a kind of uh, alloy that servers could wear, metal alloy uh, necklaces and, and trinkets that servers could wear. And the salt water wouldn't affect them, wouldn't rust them. And so I was like his rep in the United States and trying to promote that but uh, the company wasn't willing to put the money into it um to do that and uh so it was just kind of a side job because i was uh you know i was just i was traveling around to california and east coast states trying to get our product into market and and uh you know i didn't know anything about retail marketing and my brother-in-law didn't know anything so we were trying to learn along the way and it really wasn't very successful but then about um a year after the games uh, we had our first child we had our daughter claire who you met once so when we went to lunch one time i brought claire along but we um uh i my my wife jennifer said well why don't you be a home a stay-at-home parent so i was actually a stay-at-home parent for a number of years and just kind of did uh weekend work um to make ends meet, but nothing, nothing at the level of the Olympics. I remember, um, interviewing with Walt Disney company in Orlando to be a recruiter. Um, I interviewed with Warner brothers in Los Angeles to be a recruiter and really exciting jobs, but you know, they never panned out. Cause remember we were hoping to springboard into something bigger. Well, a lot of us were hoping to springboard into something bigger, you know, the, the NBA, the NFL, you know, I remember networking with Don Sterling, networking with you about the opportunities and stuff and Darren and, and yeah, I just, uh, I, I think the, the big key was that uh, for me, I, I really couldn't move anywhere. I had to stay in Utah and that made it hard. So yeah, it did. I was in the same situation. I couldn't move. And so that limited my opportunities as well. 
But as you look back at your time there, um, for you, what's the legacy? Well, I think I think the legacy was being involved in the volunteer project. Just uh, what what I was doing was um, giving other individuals that chance to feel that Olympic spirit, that excitement. And, you know, we we recruited 90,000 people. I mean, we, we recruited a lot of people and I was going out every weekend to every event that was, I, I went to every, one summer I went to every event that Utah offered and set up a booth and, and was out talking to people and passing out brochures and applications and telling people how to apply and, and getting people really excited. And, and so I, I'd like to think that in the end, those 21,000 volunteers that helped out that, uh, you know, I had a part in including them in the Olympic dream and, uh, another thing I was really proud of is I worked really closely with Shelly Silito um, in diversity. We were trying to get all these other groups involved um, that it felt left out, Native Americans, African-Americans, um, Hispanics, trying to get them involved in the games. And I was going and speaking at their events. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I think it's just I, I hope it's one of those things that for me personally, it's just the fact that I was part of it. Um, that that's my legacy. I tell my my kids. Of course, weren't born during the games. They were born after. So it's fun to talk to them. And I've got still boxes and boxes of of, of merchandise and and memorabilia. And uh, I think one fun thing was my daughter asked me to come when she was in grade school. I got to go to her grade school class and talk about the Olympics. And and uh, even today, when I walk around and see someone wearing the volunteer coat, I run up to them and say, hey, what did you do for the games? You know, were you a volunteer? Did you work for, uh, you know, SLOC? And, you know, because I knew most of the people who worked for SLOC. So I have to ask you a question. Yeah. Can you believe that now... 18 years after the fact, <laughs> people are still walking around the state wearing the mountain shadow uniform. <laughs> yeah. You see people with it on the ski slopes too. It's, it's pretty funny. Every time I see the Olympic symbol, I, I stop and go, Oh, Oh yeah. Hey, you know, I haven't seen that simple symbol in a while, but yeah, it's hard to believe it's 20 years, but I think my, I think the saddest part for me is people are forgetting about the games, you know, that we used to have the old banners hanging up and, and they're getting dilapidated now and they're not being as uh, well taken care of anymore. It seems like um, it doesn't seem like, the, you know, people have forgotten. A lot of people have forgotten about the games, so especially the younger generation that weren't around for the games. Well, hopefully they'll have another opportunity. Salt Lake is interested in hosting another one. And I and I hope that pans out well uh, for the city and the state uh, because it would definitely rekindle that excitement that we had oh, yeah. surrounding the Salt Lake 2002 games. Yeah, I really feel that we're probably one of the best places to host another winter of games because uh, if you look at all the other places that had amazing games and huge venues uh, like like Greece, um, the, one of the venues I worked at was the equestrian venue. It was a brand new venue. It was beautiful. And after the, the games, they never used it again. And it just went into disrepair. And you look at the the uh, the bird's nest in China, the cube in China, all in all in disrepair. But we have we have maintained all of our facilities. You know, it's interesting. Um, so my son and I, um, my second oldest son, we went to we went to Israel, um, and as part of that trip over there in the Middle East, we actually spent a weekend in Athens, and we went to Oaxaca. 
So, so Owaka was the complex that had all of the big venues. Yeah. It was, so it had the venue that was used for football and athletics and (laughs) the ceremonies and also the tennis venue was there and the, and the pool and the diving were there. Yeah. And so the velodrome was there as well. Yeah. The velodrome was there. So we went there just to walk around and it was really, really um, disheartening to see that it just hasn't been maintained at all. And um, it's in terrible disrepair. I will say for our Chinese friends, the water cube and the bird's nest are being used for the 2022 games, the winter games. They're actually using the bird's nest for ceremonies and the water cube is turning into the ice cube and they're using it as the curling venue. That's great. So it is going to be used again, and I'm very happy to see that. Well, Rich, I've taken up a lot of your very valuable Saturday, and I appreciate you (laughs) taking the time. So I don't want to keep you uh, any more time than is necessary for the weekend, but I did give you a few assignments at the outset. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here we go with the first question. Is there a song that really just resonates with you today that takes you back to Salt Lake 2002? Well, not um, so. Um, when I first started at Slock, um, I found John Williams had done the music for the Atlanta games. And it was, I think, Call to the Champions or something like that. And I remember getting picking up that CD and I just loved listening to the music. And uh, you know, I had the Olympic theme on it and I would listen to that a lot. But at the time when I started at Slock, we did not have hold music. And I remember saying to Darren one day, how come we don't have hold music? And he says, well, I don't know. I, no one's ever thought about that. So I said, well, I have a suggestion. What if we, you know, how hard would it be? You know, I never knew anything about hold music. How, how hard would it be to create hold music? And this is when we were trying to set up the, uh, the center um, that would handle all the volunteer applications and interviewing. And we thought, okay, if you call in to, to talk to someone over the phone about volunteering, you're just going to hear dead air if you're on hold. So uh, Darren Lee, who was, uh, I can't remember, I think he was in um, telephonics or something um, with Sharon King. He, um, we set up a voice, uh, a, a hold music system for our games. And whenever anybody called during that three years, they heard uh, that CD uh, from John, you know, John Williams music was playing those songs. And we actually used the music as our background music um, when we did commercials for games time employment. That was another fun thing we did is um, to save money. We actually, I wrote the commercials and got the the team together and we'd go into this recording studio and we record our own, our own commercials. So my voice could be heard on the radio as part of these, these commercials that I had written. And it was really fun to listen to that. And the background music, that was part of it. Um, then the second thing was Moby. Uh, Moby came out with his album and I, I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the name of it play. And uh, I listened to that constantly. And, and after my shift, at the main media center, I would drive up um, on the hillside right where that big Olympic symbol was on the mountain and look over the valley and listen to that that CD. So those are that's my music. <laughs> well, awesome. If I can find those, then I will definitely put them on our Spotify playlist. We have a Spotify playlist called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective and all the songs that are nominated by the former Slack <laughs> staff. 
they are they are included on that list so you can see all the other songs that your counterparts that have interviewed so far have uh, nominated to be on there and so we encourage anybody yeah. that's listening they can go on to the spotify playlist follow that playlist and every time a new song is added you'll know yeah well and moby even came and played at closing ceremonies <laughs> that's right uh, moby was huge back then yeah. he was huge so yeah. i'm glad that you nominated him okay now we're going to transition from the ear to the mouth talk about food <laughs> <laughs> i love food um there were a lot of great places to go and eat uh that the staff we would go eat various places but i mean you already talked about mcdonald's there in the mmc but yeah um what were some of the the places that you really enjoyed going to eat um well downtown there was a sushi place called mikado and we used to always go to the mikado um gateway had just opened up and they had put in a california pizza kitchen so we were always going to california pizza kitchen for for lunch <laughs> Yep. I remember those places. I remember those places very well. Uh, my last question for you, <laughs> as you look back at your tenure at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, what was that one memory that really just sticks out about, above all others? Wow. Wow. There, well, there were so many, so many moments, but I think for me personally, um, I think it was, I was at, I was at the opening ceremonies and um I remember um, they brought in the flag that was on the towers that had collapsed. And um, when that flag entered the stadium, it was dead quiet. Ironically, the only thing you could hear was the uh, was the propellers of the Black Hawk helicopters that had surrounded the stadium for protection from terrorism. And here was this flag that had survived the terrorist attack and was tattered and burned. And and as that came in, it was just dead quiet. And and those opening ceremonies were so powerful because the president of the United States was there. All these great people were there. Um, from entertainment and leadership and government and the Olympics. And yeah, that was, that was a powerful moment for me. Yeah. I think for everybody that saw that moment, particularly those uh, that were Americans, I mean, that was a really, really powerful moment. And I appreciate you sharing that imagery uh, there with us. Thank you again, Rich. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, for people who are listening here and they want to connect with you and understand what you're doing these days, maybe they need sure. some insurance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, how, yeah, how might they best contact you? Um, well, let's see. My email is richcanaday um, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, last name is C-A-N-N-A-D-A-Y. Um, and then I'm on Facebook as well, just Rich Canaday. So, and my 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 picture's up there so you can recognize me. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much, Rich. It was, it was a lot of fun catching up with you after so many yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, for listeners, please uh, like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll come back with more episodes in the coming weeks. Thanks, Rich. Well, thank you. 